Welcome to the Level Up Artist Podcast. We are your hosts, Adriana Amay and Jackie Sanders. We are two art professionals sharing for the advice and business lessons we have learned along our creative journeys. We talk to artists, leaders, and art professionals to demystify the creative process and discover new ways to succeed as a career-minded artist. If you find value in these conversations, please go ahead and subscribe. This will help other creatives like you find our podcast and you'll be notified when we drop a new episode every Tuesday. And on today's episode, we are really excited to welcome author Liza Roberts. So welcome, Liza. Thank you very much for having me. Liza is a journalist in Raleigh, North Carolina. She is the founding editor and general manager of Walter Magazine, a graduate of Hamilton College and Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and spent several years covering business news for Bloomberg News, CNBC, and CBS Market Watch before focusing on art and culture and founding a magazine that showcased it. While covering art for Walter, she became convinced that a book about the remarkable contemporary art of our state was long overdue, and she is honored to have had the opportunity to write it. The Art of the State, celebrating the visual art of North Carolina, was released this fall and is a beautiful and informative volume that illustrates the vitality and importance of North Carolina's contemporary art scene, showcasing the creation, collection, and celebration of art in all its richness and diversity. So as Adriana said, thank you so much, Liza, for being on the podcast today and being able to share your book with the world. It is absolutely gorgeous. Thank you very, very much. I really. So how does it feel to have it officially out of your mind, <laughs> off the computer and in physical form? feels great. It feels so exciting. I have to tell you, it's been, um, as you both know, it's been a few years in the works. And so mm. it's really, it's really thrilling to, to have the opportunity to share the story now. It's something that I've been feeling is such an important story to tell, to have the opportunity now to share it via the book and through talking to people about the book. So thank you for allowing me the opportunity to do some of that here today. No, and thank you. Um, we learned about the book. You did an early talk over in ArtSpace uh, several months back um, as part of the fresh series of exhibitions and uh, art events and activities that were happening at ArtSpace. So we got to sit in and I mean, it was a wonderful conversation and you had several of the artists from the book that were there as part of a panel discussion. So that's actually how we got to learn about you um, as an author, as a book author, not just as uh, a person working with Walter, uh, for Walter, in Walter, <laughs> all the things Walter. Um, but that's how we got to learn about this book project and kind of like some of the things that were involved with, behind it. So we're actually thanking you um, because now we are also as fellow artists able to discover other artists we may have never heard of that are essentially in our backyard um, and you're you're covering all kinds of different artists. So I don't know. It's it's very exciting. <laughs> well, thank you very much. There are so many artists uh, in the state, which, of course, is the point of the book. But I've had so many people say that to me, people like you who are working artists who say, I didn't even know that this person and that person and the other person were here and I love their work and we have all this in common. And they're, people are kind of meeting each other um, in a way through learning through the book, but in a similar way that your podcast is connecting people and um, welcoming newcomers in and showcasing the breadth and depth of talent and, and certainly in this region, but across the state too. Yes. And thank you so much. Sharing the kind words before we got on the recording today really do mean a lot to Adriana and I. And especially, I was very excited to get my hands on your first copy of the book this week, especially as Adriana said, starting from the artist talk this spring, and now it's actually coming to life, buying it at the North Carolina Art Museum, celebrating you and the museum has been an absolute treat. 
um, um, especially a good resource for artists of learning also that rich history of North Carolina, whether you were born here, um, which I'm sure we'll dive into whether artists were born here, they've been transplants here in recent years. Um, I think really diving into that rich history of the relationship between the state and the art is super, super great for everyone to learn about. But diving a little bit into your history before we get into the book, um, we are curious, did you know that you always wanted to be a journalist? And how did you get involved with the arts in terms of your journal focus? Yeah, well, I actually have always known that I wanted to be a journalist um, from the time I was very young. I I was always really curious and I um, I love to read. So I read, every, I mean, I read every newspaper and magazine. I always had a lot in the house growing up. And I knew that I wanted to be somebody who had the opportunity to go and explore different places and, and new experiences and meet people and ask them lots of questions. <laughs> and um, you got kind of a free pass to be curious when you're a journalist. You get to you get to just introduce yourself to people and ask them questions. It's, a, it's an amazing um, sort of uh, pass. You just get to do that. And I, it's what I wanted to do. I love to write. And so the combination of being able to and encouraged to go learn about things and ask questions and then write about it. Um, that was a combination that spelled journalist. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to do from a very young age. Um, I, I started really in high school um, for my high school, uh, not my high school paper. We didn't have a high school paper actually when I was there. I think they do now, but for my local newspaper, I grew up in Pasadena, California. And so the Pasadena Star News, um, it was and is our local paper. And I um, I was a summer intern and they were short staffed and they let me write all these feature stories and I was completely hooked. Um, I think one of them was on the front page of one day and I thought that that was basically everything, you know, everything was downhill from there. Um, I then uh, was involved in journalism in college. I um, was on the school, the college paper. I was the news editor for a while. And then I had a little detour actually. Um, I always think it's interesting when you hear about someone's career path to hear about the detours, because I think it's reassuring for young people to know that detours can be really productive and add facets to your life and to where you eventually end up that you would never have predicted or even chosen yourself. But my detour was on Wall Street and I um, I happened to find the job immediately out of college uh, working for a small money management firm in New York. And um, it was a great opportunity. I wanted to be in New York. So I took the job um, as a research analyst and the job was really to write. The job was to write about stocks and um, <laughs> explain to clients, you know, why the investment company was investing, what it was investing in. And so it was really a writing job, but I only did it for two years. I knew it wasn't for me in the long run. And I went to journalism school after that. Um, and then when I came out of journalism school, my resume, I'm getting to the art part. Um, my resume was all was business and journalism. So I made lots of sense to go look for a job in business news. Um, and it was uh, a job market that was really weak at that time. And so I felt really lucky to, that I was sort of I had the perfect resume for an entry level business news journalist job. And so I took that at Bloomberg News and was in business news for about 10 years. Um, you know, just kind of one thing led to the next. And it was wonderful. I learned tremendous amounts about writing. I learned huge amounts about um, the basic structure of, of a story. I mean, I felt after having learned things that I wasn't interested in, didn't really care about, didn't know anything about, that I could become interested and engaged with almost any subject and get curious enough to make it interesting, which was a skill that has um, you know, been really useful. Um, but I always loved art. And I, um, I had, I'd loved it from, again, from the time I was really young. I was exposed to a lot of art as a child. I studied art and art history in college. I was an art history minor. So, um, and wherever I went and I went to, lived in lots of places, I always sought out art and loved art museums. 
So I knew I wanted to write about art, but I didn't really know how to transition Mm -hmm. to that. And um, when my family and I moved to North Carolina in 2006, I started writing about art and culture, freelance writing about art and culture. And I loved it. I suddenly felt like everything I cared about had combined and I was getting to do the thing I really was excited to do. Um, But then there really were very few venues for this, for these stories, uh, because the newspaper was very, you know, it was already shrinking. and. there really wasn't a city magazine in Raleigh or an art and culture magazine. So that's when I started Walter because I, I wanted there to be a magazine to write for. <laughs> so that's, that's why I started Walter. So that's a long winded story about did I want to be a journalist and how did I get involved in writing about art? But Absolutely. that's <laughs> I love it. So one thing that captured my attention of what you just mentioned, and it just kind of, it's still resonating with me, is the fact that you said before getting to the art side, you were in the business side first. And I definitely relate with that because I worked in investment finance for over 12 years before making the switch to art. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Sometimes it will take you kind of like, I think you mentioned it like a detour. It feels like a detour, but it's almost like a necessary exposure to other areas that then in turn enrich the air or or your full experience even more like me working in the business sector actually gave me some of the tools that are needed now as a full-time artist in order to actually have a small business so it's very interesting too it's like I bet that there was a lot too on the business side where it just kind of popped over and then now you get to cherry pick in a way right like what elements from that toolbox if you can call it that that you learned on the business side for over a decade now you can choose what to put in and then on top of that I'm sure getting some of that business exposure helped too when you decided to actually make a magazine (laughs) no it it did definitely um but I think you're absolutely right and just in terms of the sort of mental agility that it that kind of forces upon you to sort of uh, um, challenge your brain to work in a different way and to, um, you know, sort of be more linear and, um, and to ask questions in a different sort of format. And yeah, it, then, yes, you're right. You, you learn skills that you can bring them back to a more creative and less um, sort of um, straightforward uh, process. And it helps you with create some rigor around it and maybe mm-hmm. some structure that you might not otherwise have. Um, for me, journalistically, it just made me really, really, really particular and careful about details. Um, you can't get numbers wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. to say. And so, uh, and I was doing wire service reporting for a while and you simply can't get anything wrong. So you just, and you also have to be quick. So it's kind of nice to not have to be so quick anymore, but I'm really careful, really careful about the facts always. Not that any journalist, every journalist shouldn't be, but there's just a meticulousness that business journalism requires that I think is a really, um, it's a really useful tool no matter what kind of story you're telling yeah well and also like there can be millions of dollars on the line too if you got yeah. that share price wrong yeah. on the value of a stock and somebody just put their money in it and it's For like sure. oh. um i understand i came yeah. from that world although it was more mutual funds than individual stocks but it was the same level yeah. of attention to detail otherwise there could be error resulting in loss of money so that's yeah. always that's always kind of scary yeah. but bringing yeah, it back to the yeah. book Mm-hmm. Um, how did this uh, book project idea begin and what was, you know, your initial or evolving goal with it when you got yeah. started? So it began um, while I was, you know, uh, reporting and writing for Walter and editing Walter. And I really, I loved interviewing artists, writing about artists. It was always my favorite thing. I think artists, I thought then, and I think even more now, I can't think of anybody more interesting to interview than an artist. 
they have such depths of thought and experience often and creativity, needless to say, they're just fascinating people to interview. So when I was doing Walter, I was always cherry picking all the art stories for myself. And we had an artist profile every month. And I tried to write them as much as I could without being really selfish. Um, but as I was doing that, I started realizing that there was this enormous population of incredible visual artists, certainly in the Triangle, which is the Walter sort of area. Um, but beyond it, because, you know, once you sort of start interviewing or reporting about any area, you, you suddenly become aware of all of the tentacles. And so I would constantly think, oh, gosh, I wish we could write about that artist in Charlotte, but we were on the Triangle. I wish we could write about that guy up in the mountains, but we can't because we're just the Triangle. So I knew it was a statewide phenomenon that there were these visual artists that seemed to me to be really world-class and unique um, and that they were really populous and that they were really varied. And I was surprised to be learning this kind of piecemeal on my own because I hadn't heard anybody else say it. You know, I hadn't heard heard that about North Carolina. I'm not a native North Carolinian, as I mentioned earlier. I am. Um, I was learning everything kind of firsthand. I did know, however, that we were a mecca for writers, right? I mean, we've got incredible storied literary traditions in North Carolina. I knew that about our music. I knew that about our food. I knew that about our athletics and our incredible, beautiful geographic, you know, mountains and coast and all that. There's so many things North Carolinians are so proud about, but I'd never heard anybody say, and our visual artists are among the best in the world. And yet I kept teaching myself that through reporting about it. I was like, well, why is nobody talking about this? And I also learned that we have these incredible museums everywhere, really everywhere. There's so many incredible museums in North Carolina. The most obvious one to me right off the bat was the North Carolina Museum of Art. We just spoke about CAM earlier in our conversation before we began. There's so many. Art space is a wonderful resource. So there were all of these great institutions too. And um, so I just felt like there was this great story and I really wanted to tell it. And so that's how it began. That's how the idea began. Um, I, I actually started thinking about writing this book long before I even did it, before I did made the first move to do it. Um, I think it was about 2016 when I first started thinking this is a book. And I actually went to UNC Press, just cold. I just kind of emailed them, hi, I'm a stranger, I have this idea. And they said, all right, come talk to us about it. So I did, and um, I was excited about it, but I didn't have five minutes of time to even do that when I was doing Walter. I didn't have a second and my children were quite little. So I, I kind of shelved the idea, put it on the back burner and then uh, warmed it up again, like three years later. So I think it was 2019 when I um, went back to them, I said, are you still interested? Because I know I can do it. And they were, and I wrote a proposal and um, really got going in earnest in 2020. And I think you said, what was the goal? Is that, was that yes. part of the question? Yes. Um, so the goal was to tell the, I mean, I think I answered, but it's the goal was to tell the story that I just saw was this it felt to me like a great untold story, like a scoop, literally, um, which any journalist is very excited to discover. Um, some people hear me say that and I know they think, oh, well, I mean, it's not a scoop. It's just that this was happening. And she's like, but I, it, I promise you it's a scoop because it hasn't been told and it needs to be. So I have a huge amount of enthusiasm for the opportunity to share it because it feels to me, I know that it is a story that has not yet been fully appreciated. Well, we definitely appreciate you sharing it. And I'm sure this is probably just like the beginning, if not middle of that conversation, because you're so right. I feel like being in North Carolina, both from an artist perspective myself, but also kind of a similar timeline. I moved here in 2016, um, had an internship at Cam Raleigh where um, Bill Phelan, who's also a local artist, was curating an exhibition there and it featured over 20 different artists. And so as part of my graduate project with Cam, I was like, you know what, let's just research all of the North Carolina artists that are featured in this exhibition. There's over 20 of them. 
like interviewed them, visited their studios. And I was like, what a better way to understand the artist's landscape in this state that I've never been to before, really didn't know much about. I was like, what better way than from the voices of the artists themselves and really unpacking that relationship that you also discovered. And of course, made into your beautiful book of both the celebration of artists that we have here, but also that relationship between the state and the community with our artists, having such amazing museums and opportunities for artists that I feel like in the normal community conversation isn't highlighted all the time, but it is such a rich and exciting place to be for the arts. Um, So with a very small amount of experience with writing in comparison to your extensive history, um, I am curious, though, what that writing process looked like for you compared to your work um, as the founding editor of Walter Magazine in terms of the timeline, the scope. So what was that writing process like for you? Um, The writing process was very similar, actually, Um, you know, sort of journalistically, it was very similar. You start out with an idea of a story that you think is out there start trying to report it, research it, um, talk to everybody you can about it. It doesn't really matter what the story is. The the sort of process is the same. Um, It's just bigger, you know, um, and the geographic scope is obviously much broader. So in in comparing it to sort of writing for Walter, again, I guess I just sort of started from the same place. What do I do to begin? How do I learn as much as I can about this subject? Who can I talk to? Everybody I talk to would lead me to the next person to talk to. And it kind of mushroomed out and um, I practiced, I mean, I think I did more than 200 interviews for the book. Um, I know I did more than, oh, it might've been even, well, I don't know. I forget. I counted it up one time, but then <laughs> it was a lot. Um, and so you do lots and lots of interviews and then you try to sort of see the, the, the outlines of the story begin to take shape. Um, and, you know, again, as I'm saying, as I hadn't really been told before, there wasn't a resource for me to go to or reference materials, really. It was you know, okay, well, it seems like we're I'm hearing that this, we were the first in this, and then we were the first in that nationwide. And then nationwide, we also did that first. It seems like North Carolina was doing all these things first. Why was that? You go talk to a bunch more people. Well, here's why. Here's where the money came from. Here's who was interested in making cu- culture grow here. And so it just sort of started to take shape. Um, it, it was um, logistically, you know, obviously a lot more complicated than doing a Walter, at least just one story for Walter, uh, in that um, there were so many moving parts. and. Um, there were photo shoots to schedule and it was COVID and there (laughs) were images to get from artists of, you know, photographs of their work, because oftentimes an artist will have their work professionally photographed and they want you to use that image. So just, just even the very pedestrian sort of like getting those images that are resolution and having them logged and having them fully credited. And, oh, there's just lots and lots of details to nail down. So logistically it was thorny. I did have a great (laughs) person who helped me, Tennessee Woodyell. She was great. Um, and we kind of plowed through. Um, but, you know, I'll say something, too, about something that you mentioned earlier, Jackie, which was this, the stories of individual artists, sort of the people who they are. And you wrote about them at CAM um, and you felt like it brought a lot of light to the exhibit that Bill was putting together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is a really important piece of appreciating art, visual art for a lot of people, because unlike other forms of art, like music, which kind of comes out and grabs you and fills your senses, right? You almost experience music or you experience a performance, uh, theater performance, or you, um, you, you read a book and you are immersed in this, in the world of, of the book, right? It, mm-hmm. you, these are experiences. A painting, you need to kind of, you need to go to it, right? It doesn't really come to you. You need to kind of, you need to stop and tell yourself to pay attention and ask yourself what it means. And you, the painting does not 
come to you unless you know once in a blue moon maybe it'll hit you over the head and you'll be wowed by something but but by and large i think the reason why somebody becomes engaged with the work of art first of all it's the physical beauty or challenge or message of that work of art that grips a person but then often it's it's who made it and why did they make it and how did they make it the process and the person and who they are and how they came to be who they are and how they came to create what they create that is what really engages people and I think that for visual art, more than maybe any other art form, that's a really important uh, piece of the appreciative puzzle. Um, so I, I think that uh, in terms of the work that went into this, the opportunity to tell those human stories was really um, thrilling. And I think it's part of what makes uh, art come alive and hopefully will engage more people in appreciating our art. Wow, I absolutely love that. And you're bringing up a good point, too, that... Um, you know, many visual artists, at least myself, this was my case coming from the business world, didn't realize that you think, oh, I did this painting and people will kind of get it or will kind of understand it. And it is a language like everything else, like music is a language, performance is a language. And sometimes you have to help people with writing to understand that language until they get to know you. And then they can sort of kind of translate what you're trying to transmit through the work. But otherwise, the work itself, with very few exceptions, doesn't have words on it. So they're like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to feel with it or what I'm looking at, unless it's extremely uh, representative, then actually, even then, you know, there might be nuances in it. So I absolutely love that. Um, well, you know, can I can I just say one thing about that? Yeah. Um, I think that that issue that that what you've just described is partly why people don't have not historically embraced the visual art here with as much familiarity and enthusiasm as they have our other art forms. Because I think a lot too often people feel like they need to know, what does it mean? What am I supposed to be seeing? I don't know if I get it. Am I, am I right in that it looks like this? They, they think that there's a rule book and that there's a no right and a wrong and that if they don't know it, it's not for them. Um, and too often visual art can seem elitist or kind of behind a, you know, a closed door or a hushed gallery or, a, you know, it's got to be quiet and it's very, you need to have done your homework. And so I think that that's an impediment. And I, and I hope very much that um, stories like the ones you're telling with your podcast and stories like the one I'm telling with my book kind of um, tear down that wall a little bit and just show people that these are creative people who are trying to showcase and question and celebrate and every bit of inquiry into the world we're living in today. And what you, the viewer, bring to it, brings to it is just as important in many cases what the artist is bringing to it. So it's it's for everybody. Oh, I agree 100%. Um, it's essentially like, I feel like the paintings or whatever form of artwork it is, is in many ways a mirror for the viewer. They come to it where they are and they see in it what they'd like to see. Sometimes they'll see I think my kid could do that. Well, that's on you. <laughs> like, you know, the artist had a different thing and you maybe have a different point of view with it. And that's beautiful too. You don't have to like everything. I like to compare a lot of times art to food and say, you don't have to like every single food out there or what everybody cooks. You know, it's, it's, we all have different tastes and it's exactly the same thing with art. And you don't, you know, it doesn't have to be behind a wall or, you know, gallery cube situation. It, right. I mean, it can be open. So I, I also agree. And I know Jackie does too with it's so important for us to literally it's part of our slogan. You could say our mission is to demystify that process and just have that conversation and say, look, part of the reason artists make work is because they're trying to talk to you. They're trying yes. to connect with you, communicate with you. Right. 
And sometimes we can't necessarily do it with, sorry, it's kind of cliche to say it this way. We can't say it with words. So we paint it, we create it, we tinker it, we fire it in a kiln and make ceramic stuff, whatever that looks like for everybody. And the fact that it is its own language and it's, uh, it, it is a form of communication makes it all the more interesting to try to write about it. Yes. Or, yes, or, it or describe it in words. <laughs> At least try. Yeah. <laughs> but I do have one little nerdy question real quick. Um, we won't stay on this one too much. Just a, a little nugget here. Um, my brain, right, coming from a left side brain kind of things, the business world, there is one little thing that I do want to ask you about, and it's regarding logistically, right? You did mention a lot of it is the same doing a magazine versus doing a book, but was there anything that helped you stay organized? So something that has so many deadlines and timeframes and so many moving parts. And I'm asking because artists, a lot of times might be, maybe it's not a writing project, but they may have um, a big exhibition that they want to put, or maybe a big project that they want to collaborate with someone. And just the idea of this giant rock looming over them, they're like, I don't know how to break this down. So do you have any quick tips or anything on how you were able to wrangle this giant project or yeah. any technology, anything? A good question. Well, yes, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Um, I mean, it's, it's like one thing at a time, right? Okay. I mean, like that. But I think what I would do what I did is I did, I think you used the words reverse engineer in one of our sidebar conversations and I did do that. So I looked at my deadlines and I went back and I said, okay, this mountain is due on this date. And that means I've got three months. And so how, how long is it going to take me to do one you know, unit of it, whatever that may be. And where's, where's the time in my calendar in that three month period where I'm going to, and then I was religious about it. So if I was supposed to write, a, um, if I was supposed to conduct an interview on a certain day, obviously that was scheduled. So I do it, but I would also schedule when was I going to write that profile. Um, and I allowed myself to write the chapters after I'd written all the profiles and all the sidebars, because I knew that in going back through all of my notes for those individual profiles and, um, and sidebars that, that um, threads that I could weave into the chapters themselves would be, I would be reminded of them as I went. So um, I think that was a good and useful way for me to do it. The chapters I wrote took completely separately. So, so just for the, the listener, the book is organized in six chapters and it's sort of a through line chapter. Like here you are in the mountains, here's how art gets made there and why, and here's a little bit of history and context. Here are some of the institutions and the people who support and create that ecosystem in the mountains. And then separately, here are a dozen or two dozen artists who illustrate the breadth and depth of the art being made in that place. So when I say the chapters, I mean that through line part about the mountains or the triad or the triangle. Um, so yes, I reverse engineered it. I stayed religious to my deadlines. There were times when I couldn't, and then I would really be very strict and make myself pile it up until I caught back up. And I never really did get behind. Um, right. Technology, I would say, yes, um, I, I'm kind of a technophobe. I'm not proud of it. It's not, it's not something I think is like a badge of honor at all. I think it's a weakness. But anyway, um, I use this amazing um, uh, resource called rev.com, which is, a, do, you, do you all know it? It's a transcription service. It would be very useful to both of you, I think, um, in the course of what you're doing. So it's an, it's an AI-driven um, transcription service. So um, I, you record with your phone or you could record on the computer with their app and then um, they, they transcribe it immediately. As soon as you like, you know, send that, send in that file, they'll transcribe it using AI. So it's, it's imperfect, but um, they send you the transcription within, you know, minutes. 
and then you can click on the text and it will play back that portion. So you, I was just double checked, you know, I got the gist and I took my own notes, you know, longhand as well. But then I could go back to the transcription and say, okay, that's where he says this thing. I click on it. And if there was a missing word because AI missed it, I'd fill it in. But it was amazing to have the interview transcribed and then be able to just click on the, on the actual typewritten words and hear it, those words spoken. And without that, I don't know if I could have written the book, frankly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. That's absolutely amazing, both for, I mean, conversations over Zoom, or I'm even thinking, of course, as artists who many may be um, resistant to technology or prefer handwriting, whether it's brainstorming artist statement or brainstorming um, just an explanation of a project. If you're handwriting it, then, okay, read it out loud, see how it sounds while also it's transcribed for your website or for a newsletter or whatever it may be, even in the short form. Um, but especially for those long form interviews, that's a super yeah. great insight. It is great. And it's pretty inexpensive too. Um, for, they have a, they have a transcription service whereby a human being does the transcribing. That's very expensive. But if you do the AI one I've described, I think it's like $15 for an hour of, of audio. Oh, pretty good. Yeah. And then, um, the thing that I would also say about the longhand versus technology, both, both, why does it have to be either or I, I took plenty of longhanded notes. And, and if somebody was kind of saying something I knew that, that that I was getting recorded and I knew and I was didn't need to I would say it was like jeans, plaid shirt, you know, all the things that I didn't think I had time to write down because they were talking just they're just what their studio looked like. And then and you both things can, can happen. You can do get a lot done longhand and then you can also have these magical tools helping you transcription wise. That was huge. Yeah. And I'm sure while you were having those conversations, it's one thing to get the exact quote or the dates or names of exhibitions and things like that from the artists. But of course, as a journalist, you have that ear and that brain to pick up on other cues of, oh, like you're thinking about previous interviews of this could be a great tie-in. Let me put these profiles together. So also actively taking notes while you're in that conversation, still engaged, but setting your future self up for success of coming to the table and having some of those those ideas documented Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And so with having all these conversations, um, of course, there are a lot of creative voices out there. Um, so I am curious, what was that criteria that you used to select the artists that were featured in the book? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that's the question I get asked almost <laughs> most often um, and by almost everybody. And it's, it's makes sense um, because it, I mean, where do you start? I mean, you both know there's just <laughs> an amazing number of very talented and, and fascinating people out there. So what I did was I, my mission, my goal was to showcase the diversity and the breadth and the depth. And of course the excellence of visual art being made in North Carolina today. And so I looked at it um, really kind of top down. I knew that the book was going to be so long. I knew that I would have a chance to feature so many artists. This was a, a fact, you know, factored in by how many pages I, the book could be and how many photographs could be in the book. Um, you know, these are sort of budgetary and publishing types of decisions that were made early. We did fudge it and we did stretch it. But, um, you know, basically I had the building blocks. I could have this many artists. I could have this many photographs. All right. So now how am I going to showcase all of these different kinds of art and all these different kinds of people. And so I tried to be pretty even-handed with men and women. I tried to be pretty even-handed with types of mediums of, you know, and, and met, met sort of messages and techniques. Um, I wanted to tell really interesting stories. So I was very focused on the human element as I was just describing of who these people were, 
Um, I wanted there to be, you know, Native North Carolinians. I wanted there to be immigrants. I wanted there to be people who had come to study and stayed because it was so wonderful. I wanted people who grew up here and never wanted to leave. I wanted people who'd moved from New York because New York was too expensive and they were world-class <laughs> artists. They wanted to come here because this was where they could spread out. This is where they could have a community. This is where they could be a human being and therefore afford to make art, you know? So I wanted lots of different kinds of stories. Um, I wanted lots of different, you know, you'd be surprised at how similar sometimes a story can be. Well, you know, I grew up this way and I ended up this way, but you need to have all different kinds. So I did as much research as I could ahead of time and sort of about people's backgrounds and sort of the story of how they, um, you know, became, got a toehold of success so that I would even have heard of them. Um, and then I tried to make sure that I showcased the diversity in every aspect. So, I mean, I've said this before, but I could probably have written this book 10 times over with totally different artists and it would have been exactly the same caliber of art. Um, there are so many artists. This is the tip of the iceberg. Um, one strict criteria I had was they had to be living and working in North Carolina. Okay. There were a couple of artists who I would have loved to include, loved to have included, who were who had left North Carolina, as it turns out, temporarily. I didn't know that at the time. They've come back. And I sort of think, oh, gosh, if I'd known you're coming back, we could have I would have talked to you about this. But you know, that's just points out how many there are. There's so many great ones. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It's, it's kind of vague, but um, but I, it was really just how do I show how deep, rich, wide, and interesting this is? And yeah, you can always cool. do volume two, three, four. Yeah, they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> Expanded edition, you know. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I'm curious about, because, I mean, I imagine you have a certain number of artists, of course. You're going to research as much as you can. So either during the research phase or when you got to meet with them and, and got to talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, um, were there any artists that you were really surprised by? I was surprised by almost everybody I have <laughs> because as I say, artists are such fascinating people and um, have, they have so much to say and they really, I would almost by definition, they're very thoughtful. Right. And so there's still rivers run deep. There's a lot there if you listen long enough. And we, Lissa Gottwald's the wonderful photographer who, who took the pictures in the book. Um, she and I would go to these places and half the time we would know this much about what we needed to know, because that's how much I had, these were people not, not always written about very much. And um, we didn't really know what their studio would look like. And we had to kind of learn it from scratch. So surprise was kind of a common element, but I would say that um, one artist who who comes first to mind um, when you ask that question is this incredible artist on the coast, Christina Lorena Weisner. She lives in Kitty Hawk. And she, um, she, I think what surprised me so much about her is I knew her work was environmental. I had seen some of it. She'd exhibited at the Greg um, in Raleigh. And so I knew, I knew what her art was, but I hadn't really heard much about her as a person. Um, I knew she was a young woman and that's about as much as I knew about her. And she was so fascinating because her experience in with that her intersection with the natural world informs her art so profoundly that really to be with her is to experience this, the physical world as, as a form of art in a way. Um, she makes uh, work that um, records environmental data. Um, she makes work that floats. She, it's all about, uh, she makes seismographic work that measures tremors. She's, she's measured wavelengths in the ocean. She's very, very focused on the natural world. And she herself is a former beach lifeguard and competitive swimmer. She's a, a, a serious athlete. She runs every day. She talks about the kinesthetic experience of the place that she's going to make art as being vital to her art making. So if she's going to make art about, you know, um, 
the waves and, you know, off Kitty Hawk or whatever, something like that. She will run that beach several times at different times of day for weeks to understand it in, in her body before she makes her art. Oh. And um, Lissa Gottwals and I went out to Kitty Hawk to, um, for the photo shoot. And she had her floating cubes that she had um, take, attached to her kayak and come down the Neuse River with um, hundreds of miles. And she brought them out into Kitty Hawk Harbor. And it was, it was like, you know, it was March. It was not even six o'clock in the morning. It was like 42 degrees outside. It was freezing cold. Lissa actually went in the water with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to be freezing on the shore and thought I was a hero, but Lissa was actually in the water. Anyway, Christina had put on her wetsuit. She was completely unbothered by the weather and put together all of her art. It was all kind of, you know, needed to be assembled and just walked out into the freezing ocean. And the whole thing was part of her art. Like she just is indomitable. She just experiences the earth in a different way. So I, I, I didn't anticipate any of that. And I was kind of bowled over by it. That's I guess that's one example, but there were so many. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And of course, as fellow artists and understanding more and more about that creative process, I feel like we can all find inspiration, whether you're going into ice cold water at the ocean or just shifting your creative practice to be more intuitive to your schedule or the ebbs and flows of energy throughout the day, making artwork before the sunrise, after the sunrise are definitely things that I think a lot of people can connect to. Um, and I am curious, that's one artist who's an example um, of, you were saying she finds a lot of inspiration and energy from the natural environment around her. Um, kind of piggybacking off of Adriana's question, like which artist had the most interesting or a notably interesting creative studio space that you visited? And were you able to visit all of the artists that you um, interviewed? Because it was 2020 when you started this venture. <laughs> yes, it, it was tricky, but all of the artists who are full, who have the full profile of a picture in their studio, and they're, I think there's 67 of them, something like that, 66 or 67. Yes, I did interview all of them in their studio. The, the artists for whom there's a picture of their artwork, but not a picture of themselves, those were not all in person. Some of those were on the phone. But all the ones that where there's a photograph of the artists themselves, yes, I was there for those shoots and interviewed them in person. Um, I mean, the studios are are so interesting. I just can't. I mean, there's nothing more interesting to me than to go into an artist studio and see how uh, the art is made and see the environment that it's made in. And it's it's so varied. Um, and and it, I actually think it's it's always fascinating. There's I, did, I haven't gone into a boring studio ever. Um, the one that I think was the most kind of uh, I felt was kind of pinching myself because it was so extraordinary um, was an artist named Mel Chin. And he is a conceptual artist. He's a MacArthur Genius Award winner. He lives, um, he's the only MacArthur Genius Award winner who is a visual artist from North Carolina ever. Um, He lives up in the mountains, very, very rural location in uh, Egypt Township, a town called Higgins. It's not a town, there's no town. It's just his house basically and a river. Um, He lives in an old 1920s stone mansion that used to be many things. It had a previous life as a maternity hospital it had life after that at the community sort of gathering place um, and an arts center um, that was meant to be kind of an economic driver for local crafts. It, it then had other iterations and then he bought it when it was abandoned and empty and he needed a big place to store his work and work there. So it's this, this you, you basically, it's in the middle of nowhere and there is this gorgeous kind of statuesque mansion with, vines covering it and there's a house off to the side and that's where he lives and that's the former head doctor's house and he lives there with his wife and the house itself the mansion it is um like a factory of studios 
And he's got like a film studio and a woodworking studio and a painting studio and a silk screen area. And um, it's amazing. Um, and then, you know, there was simultaneously a fleet of people making another whole giant warehouse size studio for him off to the side. And so this whole compound felt like a, a kind of like a, a like through the looking glass. You know, it was um, like a fairy tale, something separate from reality. And he is. I mean, he's a MacArthur genius, so I can fairly call him a genius. But talking to him was absolutely fascinating. He's so well, well and diversely read and so thoughtful about so many things. And to be with him in that environment, having the conversations that we had um, was a, a special an experience I've had as a journalist of any. So I think that was probably the most memorable studio. Wow. Wow. Just trying to picture it. My brain's like, I, I yeah, after after we're done recording, I'm definitely looking up you know, some of these folks, that sounds absolutely, <laughs> oh my goodness. Very, very interesting, man. <laughs> sounds like an artist's paradise there. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, and so he's not too far from Asheville. Um, and so UNC Asheville students help him sometimes with his work. Um, he had a giant, so in 20, I think it was 2020, don't quote me, it might have been 2019, I think it was 2020. Um, New York City asked him, did a retrospective of his work. And so each of the five boroughs had one, an installation that he created and he needed to create um, something for Times Square. He decided to create uh, an installation that would showcase climate change. And so he built a 60 foot tall animatronic sculpture with the help of UNC Asheville students that looks kind of like a, a whale skeleton. And it also kind of looks like a shipwreck. It's kind of like these ribs, you know, of like the, could look like the, the hull of a boat or a, a whale skeleton. And um, he built it with these UNC Asheville students and it was right in the middle of Times Square. And it was in Asheville um, when Lissa and I were there, but he had built it there at his at his um, compound with UNC Asheville students. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, we'll definitely have to look all this up and yeah. we'll obviously share it with readers too. I mean, with our podcast listeners and or folks that watch on YouTube. Um, so it sounds like through your diligent research, interview, conversations, I mean, all of this um, that you're having with creatives to write this book, I mean, you must have learned a lot about what the modern, you know, day artist is, is faced with. So it's not just a looking in the past art history type thing, like you're actually talking to folks that are currently practicing you know, their, their craft in this day and age. So with that in mind, what was the biggest challenge um, as you were like talking to different artists that you see contemporary artists face and what would your advice be to them? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that a lot of artists, visual artists, really struggle to, to make a living. Of course, we talked about this a little bit um, as, as an artist and many, if not most of the folks that I included in the book also teach um, because they Want, they need and want benefits and they also love to teach many of them and it keeps them making art um but they you know it's very hard to be a self-supporting working artist with just your art um so i think that's a major challenge i think for younger artists or artists earlier in their career the challenge is is getting seen and getting traction sort of in the marketplace of art or even in just the conversation about art um that's hard, you know, galleries have been, small galleries have been disintermediated in many cases by the internet, by Instagram. In some ways that's hugely beneficial for artists, but in some ways it also robs them of the sort of champion that a great gallerist can be, connecting mm -hmm. them with collectors. So I've seen a lot of gallerists become art advisors and um, 
I think that that's a really interesting uh, role because the overhead is is gone, but the advocacy is there. Um, so I think for a young or young artist or an artist, you know, at the beginning of their career, that's a real challenge. How do, how do they get an attraction? How do they find collectors? How do they reach an audience? Um, and I would say that, you know, when I was looking for artists and I was really trying to find artists that nobody was telling me about, I didn't want to only um, include artists that people already knew about. And I hopefully, and I believe I did, uh, include many artists who were not part of sort of a, a more a, a conversation at a higher level that they were much more uh, sort of grassroots discoveries. Um, participating in shows like the one where I met you all, the Fresh Show at Artspace, um, that is, a, I think you can't under, under, you can't overstate <laughs> how important that that might be. There are many artists in this book that I found in shows like that. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, you know Ivana Beck, Ivana Milojevic Beck. Yes. Um, yeah, I, she's wonderful. She's great. She's amazing. And she's a fellow colleague at Artspace. And now she's at City Market Artist Collective. Yep. Yes. Right. Um, so she, I saw her piece, um, one of her pieces at Coined in the South, which is the, the mint show. I, it's, I'm pretty sure it's annual. It might be biannual. Um, that is all Southern artists. And I just went and looked at every single piece of art and anyone from North Carolina, I looked hard at that work and I thought, is this something that I haven't seen before? Could this have a place in the book? And her work is so singular, right? I mean, wax and bricks and all of the kind of curvaceous um, forms that she creates out of those two elements is so interesting. Uh, so I first saw her there and then I kind of followed up and I followed her a little bit, you know, saw what she was doing and thought she sounded like her story was really interesting. And her work was really, really unique. And um, so I saw her there. I also found Chieko Marasugi um, through a, a very small um, artist, sort of a community showcase of art um, in Enfield, which is a small town near Rocky Mountain. And I'd been invited up there to see this show by a fellow who organized it. And there were, you know, it, it was very small, but I just was exploring everything. So I wanted to go see it. And there I saw Chieko's piece and I thought, I think I've seen this work somewhere else. And then in fact, I've seen it at Coin in the South. So once you start hearing the same name over and over again, if you're a collector or you're a journalist like me, or you're someone like you all and you're looking for subjects, I think that's probably how you find people too. Like, Didn't we hear about that person? Should we ask about? So I, I would encourage um, artists who are trying to seek that traction and find that audience to submit their work to everything. Um, and to be, and to really, you know, I, I'm sure that not everybody loves Instagram. I know I don't, and I've had to learn how to <laughs> do it, but, um, to be, be much better at it. But, um, but I think that that's a great tool too. I really do. I like it. I like it. I feel like, um, some of the, some of the things that are resonating with me is that idea of it's not, it's not a popularity contest really. And it's not necessarily like if your challenge is to make a career out of this is, Essentially, you need eyeballs on your work and for people to find you, it's not just online because it also depends on the viewer and what platforms they're in. But that a great opportunity, especially for those that maybe whether they're young or not, uh, emerging artists is to be in group shows that perhaps some of the participants in them already have followings that are being drawn and already have collectors. And then they get a chance to discover this newer artist, too um and essentially spread the love you know not just you know again places like the internet uh and social media and whatnot but also in person and then make that connection is the other thing that i'm you know that i'm hearing from what you're saying is like actually 
whether introverted or not, <laughs> introverts here, um, is to actually make that effort to network. Because you also mentioned how galleries in the part in the past, and some of them still are, can be advocates. And same thing, they also have exposure to a different kind of audience that an individual artist may not. So it's also creating those links and those connections and talking to people. Honestly, it all really boils down to. Well, this has been around for a few thousand years. We'll talk to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Make that connection. And then mm -hmm. who knows? Somebody that yeah. knows somebody that knows somebody. And then they're like, ooh, I want to feature you in a book. Ta-da. Exactly. I really think that that's so true. It's it's um you can't you can't expect to find an audience if people don't even know you're there. And so um, and you'd be amazed every time I've done an event and had artists um, you know, on a panel with me, those artists have folks from the audience who seek them out afterward. That's happened four times now in a week and a half. So um, I know that, and those were people who were self-selected to come to an art event, who love art, who are all about North Carolina art, and they hadn't heard about these people. Once they did, then they wanted to know more. So yeah, people can't like something they don't know about. Exactly. And it's all about engaging in that conversation. Mm -hmm. I think you even pointed out, I mean, Instagram is a great platform and the empowering aspect of being a modern day artist is you don't necessarily need gallery representation to have your own website, to put your artist statement online. You yeah. can do it through social media or your website, but that does also only get you so far as we've discussed. The history and the richness of the arts community was existing long before Instagram, long before social media. So it's also engaging in that in-person conversation and especially with visual um, art, experiencing the work in person for so many people there is sometimes a little bit of the magic that's lost when it's condensed down to an image or you're experiencing it on a backlit phone a lot of it is about going into a calming room where it's quiet and they don't have noise or a podcast playing in the background as great as podcasts are while they're scrolling instagram that changes your relationship to what you're looking at so going into these physical spaces hearing artists talk about their work can really be a way that your artwork can stand out and engage with people who may not be on Instagram or following you or on your website. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. And I think when if people do meet you and at a at a you know like something like the fresh exhibit and I get to say, you know, um so Jackie, tell me about your work and you can explain it to them, then suddenly they are they have that connection to the work that they're already predisposed to be somebody who might, I mean theoretically be somebody who might collect your work. And then there's a reason for them to want it to come home with them, right? Because they have a story about it and they care about it. Um, I think that's a huge, I, I, every, you know, there, I've also profiled collectors in the book and all of the collectors that I interviewed um, said very similar things about that, that, that they were very attached to individual works of art because they know something about the artist. And here's what the artist said to me and here's how the artist did it. And when I was in the artist studio, this is what she told me. I heard that time and again, it's that connection, the artists themselves, because, you know, the truth is, is that lots of people um, believe that artists are have a magical ability. They're almost a, 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 a sort of, um, you know, it really is. It's a way it's turning an idea into an object. Mm -hmm. That's It's a transformation that seems in many ways impossible to lots of people. And the fact that you all can do it, um, it's exciting and people kind of want to get near that. So I think the more that artists can share how that works, the more people are engaged. Artist magic. We're just going to go with that. <laughs> we just try to go behind the curtain and show how the trick is done. That's why we do the podcast. But um, okay, so those are some of the things that are, you know, that can help somebody stand out. Of course, you know, we're, we're covering some of that. But 
on the flip side of that, is there, uh, what is one thing that you've seen artists do that could harm their reputation other than, you know, hiding away in the studio and never coming out to see the light? Because there's those two. <laughs> I'm not hating on the hermits. I'm kind of one yeah. too. But is there anything that you've seen that you're like, ooh, no, don't. Mm -mm. It's hard. I don't think so. I think that the only thing I could really think of is just to lie fallow for a long time. I mean, you know, there were a couple of artists who I had heard of or I knew of vaguely and I went to go try to track them down and they hadn't made any art in, in a couple of years and their website didn't have anything new on it. And they, I just figured they were probably not currently making work. And so I just, you know, I didn't have, there were so many to choose from. What I needed was ways to eliminate people. So if, if it seemed as if an artist wasn't currently, you know, actively participating in the art world, I didn't, I didn't really chase them down. There was one person I tried to chase down and he, he did not want to be chased. So he didn't, want, you know, fair enough. Um, so yeah, I think that I, I can't imagine anything. Most things that an artist does, if they're interesting, are probably a pretty good idea to do. <laughs> yeah. And that's fair. I heard this comparison the other day. I don't remember where, where they said you, the artists trying to talk to their audience, their collectors, to fellow artists. <clears throat> oh, sorry. It's much like fostering a friendship. And they're like, if you stop talking to your friends, you know, they are like, did I do something? Should I reach out? Um, yeah. And much in the same way as an artist who's trying to make a career out of this, it's almost like you stop showing up to work. Yeah. It happened. Like, I mean, maybe you're still employed, but nobody's yeah. for me. We haven't seen you in the office for a while. Right. Um, you kind of drop off the radar a little bit, but I understand that makes sense too. Cause sometimes, I mean, it's just stages of life as well, where it's like, maybe they're taking care of a parent, an aging parent or a child with some needs yeah. and things like that, or a medical situation. And they just kind of have to drop off the radar a little bit, but that is actually a good reminder for those of us that don't always post all the time <laughs> that we do need to remind others that, you know, signs of life, we're alive and well, we're still <laughs> making work, <clears throat> just post a few times. <laughs> and I think that brings up that interesting conversation too of um, what does showing up for your creativity and for your craft mean to you? I feel like for artists that can be so different, it may be making artwork every single day and sharing it with the world in real time. It may be, you know what, I'm going to be going into a tunnel vision of studio time for three months, six months, building a collection. And that might be part of their creative process. Not that they don't peek their head out every once in a while, but they might need that focus time, but they're almost doing the opposite. They're actively so engaged sure. in their creative practice um, that they might not be posting about things on Instagram or they have previous collections in exhibitions, but they're building this new body of work. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's also figuring that out as artists, what that looks like to you, which kind of brings us to that perfect segue into a question that um, we ask everyone who's on our podcast is after talking to all these artists and having an art form yourself with writing, um, how do you define success as an artist? I think, I think if I were thinking about for visual artists and the people I've been writing about, and both of you, I would say engagement. You know um, mm. that if if what you're if if art is a form of language and it's being spoken or used to describe an idea or uh, a question or um, a matter of significance to you as an artist, then I it seems that what you're seeking is engagement. And I think if there are people who engage with your work then you've succeeded. Whether that's they're interested in it, they're curious about it, they want more of it, they want to collect it, they want to talk about it. I mean, that seems to me to be like a, the, the very essence of, of success. 
And as a writer and editor, of course, you have an art form in your own, in your own creative practice and journey. Um, so what is one piece of advice that you wish you had heard before you got started on your journey as a writer? What advice would you give yourself? Um, I think I would I would give myself the advice, don't expect anybody to come and hand you opportunities. Um, literally, I, I think it's very rare that somebody um, seeks someone out and says, hello, I've discovered you in the wilderness and here's the perfect job or here's the perfect writing opportunity or here's the perfect anything. Everything I've ever done that has succeeded is something I created myself. And I think that that is, um, it's actually really exciting to know that early on because it means you're in the driver's seat. And I didn't think that way when I was younger. I sort of thought, well, I'll work hard and then I'll get promoted or then I'll, somebody will give me another better job. And it was a much more passive way of looking at things. And I, and, you know, I, I guess I was just younger and just didn't really think that hard about my career arc. But once I started realizing that I, I there were things I wanted to do that I couldn't do, and I, I was going to have to make them happen myself, then everything started to, to work the way I wanted it to. So, yeah, I think I would just say, create your own opportunities and start now. Yeah. No, and I love that. And I think that's also really important for artists to, to hear, regardless of what stage they're in, because if you work for somebody else, most careers, there's already a path and you have to do like hit certain milestones to maybe be eligible to be promoted. And then you also have to be assertive enough to ask to be promoted when you deserve to be promoted. So there's like this whole politics, office politics and things that happen, you know, when you work for somebody else. But when you work for yourself, you also have to realize whether through the journey or you hit yourself against the wall and then you realize it, um, that you have you have to build your own career, especially creative careers. There is no preset yeah. way to get from A to B. You have to trailblaze your own way. There is no no preset. So I love that you're you know that you're hammering that in because I think we need to you know drive that point home all the time. You know, I think artists are natural born entrepreneurs. Yeah, um, you're all creating something out of nothing. You're all taking yeah. an idea that only you have and you're making it real. You're all um, in business for yourself mm -hmm. um, and. That's what an entrepreneur is. So I think artists are entrepreneurs. And part of what I love about talking to artists is that entrepreneurial journey that they go on. You know, I I have a unique idea. I don't see anywhere else. I'm going to, I need to make it real. I need to make it happen. I'm going to do it. I did it. Now, what am I going to do with that? I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I'm going to spread it. And so how they, how they go about it, it's an entrepreneur's journey. It's really interesting. I think, um, I don't mean to take away from the artistry and the nuance, but I'm just thinking of it as just sort of an enterprise. It's very entrepreneurial requires immense independence, creativity, and determination. Um, Definitely a lot of determination. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's like, this could be a podcast episode on all, on all its own, that whole idea of like, why are you separating the art from the money when for hundreds, thousands of years, that's how it was done. I'm like, Da Vinci worked on commissions. Yes. Why is it not good now, but that's a different story, different rabbit hole, but that's what that made me think of. But speaking of money, hey, there's the tie-in. Um, if uh, someone just hands you hundred bucks, uh, what would you splurge it on or invest in? It has to be something that brings you joy and is related to art or business. Well, I think it would be art. I mean, obviously I think it would be a very small work of art probably or a print or something, or maybe it'd be a book about art. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think it would be something like that for sure. Um, because there's, I don't think there's anything like art that to bring you lasting energy and happiness and um, sort of peace and satisfaction in your own home than a work of art can, can do. There's nothing like that. You know, it can, if you, if there's a, 
a work of art that you love that you can kind of get lost in. It changes your entire experience of being there, being in the place where that work of art is. That's a, that's really, really valuable. Um, so if there was if there was a work of art that was small enough that could be, you know, that I could buy with that amount of money, I would probably do that. I absolutely love that. And so Liza, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. There are definitely way more rabbit holes that we could have gone down, but we appreciate you sharing your experience with us, writing the book, and of course, having this beautiful book now being published. We just want to say congratulations. And how can our listeners stay connected to you after listening to this podcast episode? Well, thank you very much, Jackie and Adriana. Thank you so much for your questions and thank you for what you're doing to promote our artists and to give them a platform to share their stories and, and to get to know each other and for everyone else to learn about them. I really applaud what you're doing. And I'm really excited to go down all of your rabbit holes. That you've already <laughs> explored with so many other guests I've started, but I need to do some more. So thank you for all that. I am right now. Instagram is the best way to keep in touch with me. Um, I have a website in the works, but um, you know, I spent all this time working on writing the book and I didn't think about um, some of the promotional things until suddenly I needed to think about them. So I will be a website will be happening soon. But in the meantime, my Instagram account is the art of the state. So the book is art of the state, but the Instagram is the art. Of the state. So yeah. That, thank you very much. much. Yeah, absolutely. And as uh, we start to wrap this up, a uh, real question, where can our listeners get a hold of this book? Oh, they can get it. Um, well, in Raleigh, Quail Ridge Books, um, there's a great bookstore in Southern Pines called the Country Bookstore, and that's another great place to get it. I recommend all independent booksellers. Um, it's also available on Amazon. It's really available anywhere books are sold. It's also at the North Carolina Museum of Art. Um, and I'm excited that I'm going to be there on Sunday signing books. I don't know when this podcast is going out. It might be. Um, yes, this will be aired on the Tuesday after that. But I am excited. I got my copy yesterday from the museum and I will be there on Sunday to get oh, a signing of it. So I'm excited to see you again in person Thank to get my personal copy autographed by you. Oh, I'm honored. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's perfect. And for any upcoming talks and things like that, those are on Instagram then? Yes. Perfect. perfect. On Instagram. And um, yes, I'll be tomorrow. Well, the, at the point that this is aired, um, there will also be a recording of another um, talk I'm doing with Malaprop's bookstore, which is virtual. So that should probably be up by then too. And, um, and I'm going to be at the Mint Museum on December 7th for a book signing mm -hmm. in Charlotte. So. Nice. Yeah. nice. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity for this great conversation. Well, and thank you so much for joining us on, on the podcast today. Like this has been amazing. Um, I'm like, we've done a few authors, but yeah, this, yeah, this is very cool. Thank you for coming onto the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yes. And as always, all of our episode notes, as well as links to other podcast episodes will be in the show notes for today, including museums and artists that we talked about today. And of course, links to contact Liza and get your hands on her beautiful new book, Art of the State, Celebrating the Art of North Carolina. And if you want to stay connected with Jackie or myself in between episodes, share what you have learned. You can follow uh, us on social media. I'm at a May Art across all platforms. And I'm at J Sanders Studio on all platforms. Or if you want to follow the podcast, we are at Level Up Artists on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.